Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. This is Isaac. And today we are joined by Luke Melanakos Harrison. Uh, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Luke, a uh, longtime listener, first time caller. It's really cool <laughs> to be here with my two of my Twitter buddies and also Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Damn, damn. I know. And also, Isaac is always the vibe. <laughs> We're going for here. What happens when you quit social media? Yeah, right. Well, I was going to say, like, when we always reference the 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 one listener out there, it 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 is Luke. Uh, Luke has said many times on Twitter how much he loves the pod. So natural, we have to have the 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 guest on, right? We have to bring you on for that. But not only that, I think you also um, you have a very fun Twitter presence, but you also you have a a Bible account uh, where you get into just kind of whatever. Uh, you're studying or thinking about the Bible right now because you're also um, a seminarian. Is that that's right? Yeah, I just finished my first year at Yale Divinity. Oh, wow! And so I think we also wanted to have you on. I mean, to get into the Bible of it all because real heads know we love the Bible. <laughs> we yeah, I love talking about the Bible. Yeah, I started that account because I didn't want to spam all of my lovely non-religious followers with my Bible takes all the time. Um, I've got a lot of people who followed me when I was a homeless outreach worker in San Diego who have just like stuck around for the ride. And I appreciate them (laughs) deeply. But (laughs) yeah, I started the Bible account just to have a dedicated space for that. But yeah, the Bible has been kind of, I would say in many ways, the center of my spirituality for as long as I've had a spirituality. Um, so I love talking about it. See, and I'd like to say this is the way that you're supposed to do social media. Me, I, I spent all this time trying to build a, a young adult Twitter presence. And then all of a sudden I decided, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Now I'm going to talk about theology. So I've definitely alienated that. I, I think I've lost like 500 followers since I started making that definite switch into talking about the Bible and theology and stuff. But uh, this is the way to do it, kids, right? So just start off the second one and only focus on there. But so mo- most of the people aren't, aren't hanging on for the ride with me. There's kind of like, oh, I guess he's gone totally off the uh, off the wagon on this. And now it's just, you know, that's just who I am, I guess. So I'm losing my Twitter presence. It's the only reason that uh, Isaac wanted to bring me on the podcast in, in, in general is he thought that I would be able to create some kind of buzz or like uh, uh, have some kind of clout online. And now it's just all <laughs> gone. I've, I've, I've squandered all of it. <laughs> They're actually all unfollowing you because you continue to write books without an incestuous <laughs> romance. Uh, callback. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, maybe I'll get on that. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> God. Maybe. Or we could skip it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> unlike the Bible, which has several incestuous romances. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm staying on topic here. Don't ever question my segues. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you said the Bible has been the center of your spirituality. Um, did you grow up in a specific denomination or have you have you moved around a little bit? My parents converted to Christianity when I was a kid and um, we kind of landed at a PCA, so the conservative Presbyterian denomination, when I was in middle school. So that, that was most mostly where I was at until a few years ago. So... Um, Tim Keller's denomination, if people know who that is. Oh. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, my the church I grew up in was very, very proud of being re- reformed, sort of in, in contradistinction to the evangelical non-denominational churches that were around us. But those worlds blend so much in terms of 
like ideology and what people are consuming also, which is such a like defining factor of what evangelical means these days. So I say evangelical in a lot of contexts because people know what that means, but it was, it was actually more like Calvinist. That was sort of the identity of the church. Yeah. I think about that sometimes because like we, I grew up Methodist. Isaac is still Methodist, grew up Methodist. Um, but like my dad was a Sunday school teacher and he taught like John Ortberg Sunday school lessons all the time, who I believe is also PCA. But I mean, my dad does a lot of research, but I don't think would have would have known or really cared that uh, that there was this like other completely different tradition that he was that Ortberg and Keller coming out of that like bled into the mainstream. I didn't have a question at the end well, of that. Part, part of that is I, I'll just add tag on to that is that also I grew up Methodist, but it doesn't matter. Um, I, uh, no one cares. I <laughs> Listen, I've got, well, whatever. Uh, part, I had a great point. And now, now I've got, I'm trying to figure if I want to try to score points on, on Isaac or not, but I'm not. But part of that too, like, especially in the Methodist church is it comes out of like Cokesbury sometimes where they just are like a distrib- distribution thing. So a lot of people just buy books from Cokesbury and think, oh, this is fine. Uh, and then they start teaching them. Because I, I remember the first church that I ever worked in, we did a John Ortberg book, I think. Maybe it's Philip Yancey, same thing. But it was like the one about like, get out of the boat, like, or something like that, where it's like all about like stepping mm-hmm. out outside the boat. And, and yes. it's, I, there's, there's, that, there's a very interesting, I think, conversation to be had, not that we have to have it now, about just how we kind of just let lay people just, and, or, or even pastors at that point, just kind of like run with things without any kind of discernment about what it's actually saying about like our own like theological perspectives, if you're in a denomination or not, so... The Adam just, Hamilton effect. Oh, oh that's oh yeah. We could definitely talk about Adam. We Sorry. should get him on. The, we should get him on the pod, Isaac. That would be one of my favorite episodes. Isaac's favorite person. Yeah, you know what? Um, I think that's how we originally I thought about him in so long, but now I'm triggered. See, this is why I left Twitter. It was Adam Hamilton. He ruined it for me. I'm pretty sure this is how Isaac and I actually bonded on Twitter. Is he had a, yes. he, had a he had a spicy Adam Hamilton take? I was like, okay, all right. This guy, we're down. <laughs> I will say that uh, your point, Brian, about you know mainline Christians just buying evangelical propaganda in their local Christian bookstore is so real. I went to a Cokesbury, which is a Methodist like bookstore for folks who don't know what that is. They don't really exist anymore because of Amazon and other things. But I went into a Cokesbury like a decade ago, and when I was considering going to seminary. And was in like the vocational discernment section. And the first book I picked up in the intro as I flipped through had a long screed about why women shouldn't be pastors. And I just went up to the people behind the desk and I was like, hey, this is sitting there and you're like vocational discernment section. What if like a woman who's interested in ministry picks it up? Our denomination affirms the call of women into ministry. But this book in this ostensibly Methodist bookstore. Anyway, it just, it's a slippery slope out there. I do um, want to call every single person who told me women shouldn't preach and be like, surprise, bitch. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I don't think that they'd react well. <laughs> Luke, and so you grew up PCA, but we were talking, so Yale is an Episcopal seminary, or at least has Episcopal ties. I think it maybe has a couple of denominational ties. So what what led you to Yale Divinity School? Uh, getting excommunicated from the PCA. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
so I grew up at, you know, the PCA church my parents still go to. Um, and then late high school, early college, helped start a church plant out of that church. So I, there was kind of like a Bible study group that one of the interns was leading and then he got ordained and then we started our own church and I was the worship, worship pastor at that church. No, not pastor. I was not the pastor. They don't use that terminology. The worship leader. I think actually I had to be the music director for gender reasons. Anyway, I helped start that church, was there for several years. And then long story short, came out as gay, started dating my now wife and had a long and painful separation process from that church. So then I was kind of denominationally and still am really denominationally homeless. I mean, I ended up at a UMC church that was affirming because it had a rainbow flag and was a couple blocks from my apartment and was really welcomed there. And it was, it was such a healing experience to be there. But unfortunately, the UMC as a whole is like going through this whole thing. So <laughs> the rest of it was a dumpster fire. We, we've covered it on the pod. Yeah, I had a very different experience in a Methodist church. Yeah, yeah. I've been to, I've been a part of two Methodist churches now, and they've both been really wonderful. And I have like nothing but good things to say about them. Um, That's awesome. Shouts out. Yeah. To the two good ones. <laughs> uh, I'm crying inside. <laughs> Listeners can't see it, but I'm dying. <laughs> so I yeah, I have a question. It's like being like denominationalist. I like I, I have that sense sometimes, but it's for obviously for very different reasons. You you see a lot of stuff, especially like on like Christian Twitter about, you know, there's like with the ex-evangelical kind of crowd, I guess, where um there's this, you know, sense of like wandering that happens in that thing. And and a lot of it is, you know, I think ultimately ends up in growth. Some people kind of get static and never leave that place. I, I guess I wonder like what's it like, you know, being what has been the transition, I guess, going into like to Yale Divinity in that place. Like in my, my experience at Divinity School was there were a lot of people that were in there, but it, it feels like that that's a, that's a you know, that, that there's, a, there's a sudden shift there, I guess. And like, does it make it easier? Uh, is it something that, is it a, like just a different lens that you're bringing to the, the, the stuff that you're studying or doesn't, doesn't matter at all? I mean, it might not matter at all. And I'm just kind of, you know, grasping at topics because there was dead air. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, I, I really picked Yale Divinity School because it is very ecumenical and I didn't feel like I commit, could commit to a denominational seminary at this point. So I went there to try to explore. Um, I mean, the way that Yale Div is structured is that there is, there's the Episcopal seminary within it. And then there's the Andover Newton, which is like the Congregationalist churches. So the UCC and I think the Baptists have their own seminary. And then the rest of us are other denominations or no denominations. So I would say like probably the people who are in those seminaries are having a much more denominationally colored experience. But outside of those seminaries, there's people of all stripes and varieties for sure. So I, I mean, I'm at this place where I can't picture myself kind of being really emotionally attached to a denomination again. And I think that's a good thing. I know y'all have talked so much on this podcast about like the crisis of institutions that we're all sort of going through. And 
the potential there. And I, I feel constantly torn about, do I want to commit to an institutional denomination again at all? If I do, in what kind of relationship do I want to be with that? And then, or do I not want to do that again and just try to create some sort of grassroots community, house church thing, I don't know, outside of the structures of an institution? I need to figure that out because it's going to determine what I do with my life. But um, that's where I'm at. (laughs) Mom, all the ex-angelicals are non-denominationalists again. (laughs) Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, I mean, that, it's just such a common trajectory right now. It's kind of like, do I invest myself in this, like, you know, seat of, on the Titanic? Or do I? I mean, it, it, yeah, I just, I appreciate what you're saying, Luke, because that's basically every day of my life that uh, <laughs> sort of back and forth. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I was like the seat on the Titanic. That's every day of my life. I was like, okay, we need to pause, like have a little, a little talk real quick. I, you know, I, this is like, this is like where, again, as I said before, where uh, Isaac lives rent free in my mind when he told me I needed to decolonize my mind. I, I feel like sometimes I think about that with denominations too, because I loved, loved, loved the Methodist church. And I still do like to an extent, like I want to be like, I think CJ, you and I have talked about that. Uh, maybe it's just on text, but it was just like this thing of like, I would go back like in a second if I could uh, or, and felt felt okay about that. And, and I want to feel that way about the Episcopal Church. But to it, so, but I'm like, I'm stuck in between like Luke, what you just kind of mentioned about like not really wanting to kind of like fall in love for one reason, because the way that I see people sometimes on Twitter who are kind of just like fawn over being Anglican just drives me nuts. Uh, but on another different reason, it's just like, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to say I'm trying to I balance myself between not wanting to tr- not trusting the institution because I don't know how long it's going to last or they just keep kind of like shooting themselves in the foot so they probably won't last. And the other thing of just being like, I actually think there is power in those institutions or there can be good power in those institutions. So I, I fall back and forth between those two places. And and right now, you know, the Episcopal Church is kind of just where I landed because it's the only place where I can I can actually see myself, you know, doing what I want to do in an, in an actual denomination. So anyway, I, I appreciate, I think that tension is real for a lot of people. Uh, I just wish sometimes wish I could just be like happy and Methodist again, <laughs> instead, of, instead of seeing it the way it is. So. Yeah. I actually tweeted before I deleted my old Twitter, I tweeted something the other day that was like, you know, the Episcopal church is the second choice for a lot of yeah. people. And I think that's like the tension in a lot of discussions in the Episcopal church is like, the tension between people for whom like the Episcopal church is, is their best choice and their favorite choice. And they got to make it freely. And uh, for people who like ended up there almost as like uh, refugees from other denominations and like, and someone reacted to to it really badly and was like, this is a weird thing to say. Like, I'm sorry, but it's cracking me up. I think it's hilarious. (laughs) With the tweet or people's reaction to it. No, just the idea that the Episcopal Church no. is people's <laughs> second choice. Like, it's so true. It, and I mean, like, it's not the second choice for everyone, but like, like I do the feel this. Fallback school. I mean, like, and it has a lot of interesting theological traditions and stuff that happens in Episcopal churches that is unique. Anyway, I feel like I'm now well, defending no. <laughs> defending why I'm there, and it's not like it's my second choice, but it's still good. But, but I don't think it's. I mean, second choice has a has a like a negative meaning to it, and I. This is this is what kicked off this conversation last time, CJ, is that the person who responded negatively, like, well, for some people, it's like, 
calm down. That's not the point. Um, but I, I think that like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there, you know, I actually, I enjoy a lot of things about the Episcopal church. I enjoy the focus on, on the Eucharist and I enjoy the idea of like liturgy as this public thing um, that has like, in my opinion, has, is like very material and like populist. I don't think everybody would agree with me on that. But I think that like calling it a second choice is like there, it's not that it's like, it's not that you just, I didn't get into uh, whatever school, <laughs> fallback school as Isaac said. I think it's like, it, there's a place where it's like, initially I can see myself like being safe or being welcome there. But I think what needs to happen with the Episcopal Church in that, in that way is not just being seen as that because they have, they don't have like a theologian. They don't have necessarily a doctrine that has to be like prescribed to like in the way that a lot of other denominations do. But so instead they have this kind of like huge big tent theology aspect, which is really great, but it creates like opportunities for people to never actually have to commit to any kind of like theological point of view or, or idea that like that kind of like guides how they think. And all of a sudden you have, you know, the people that are like uber Anglican over here and the people that are like barely Christian, if that, and you, you over here. And all of a sudden it creates this tension that maybe we don't believe anything. And so like, for me, I, that's one of the things that I actually want the Episcopal Church to do is to kind of double down on the fact that the reason we celebrate, you know, Eucharist as the focal point of the liturgy is this reason, because it's very material and it's it's like this very subversive thing that we can do in the world against powers and principalities. Uh, I just took Anglican theology, so I have all this in my head. <laughs> but I think, but I think like there's... I was, I was like, Brian's getting into it. Yeah, let's go. Uh, but, I, but I think that like, like, I don't think calling it a second choice like there's some grace in that and there's some really good stuff in that. But I just don't think, I think it, what happens is, is people only see it as like this social thing. And when it becomes only the church where they allow, you know, uh, gay people to be themselves, like ultimately that, that's, that's going to be not enough for a lot of people once they get there. Because especially if you're coming from a different tradition that inspired you in your faith or kind of, to lack of a better uh, cliche, you caught fire, you know, in your faith on, it's, you're not going to find that in the Episcopal Church a lot of times. You're going to find like swinging incense and people kissing the Bible. And, and that's fine for people that grew oh, up yeah. in that. <laughs> that was for you, Isaac. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and that's fine. Sure. But it's not, it's, it's not going to, it doesn't translate into those of us who grew up in a very specific co context. Anyway, I'm just like narrating at this point, solo pod. Uh, you all can just sign off if you'd like to. I can keep going. <laughs> I, I think that there's um, more I want to say on this, but I can't for at least a few more weeks. So um, <laughs> I guess a little teaser there for the folks. Um, Luke, I, I think that one of the things that, May be a through line for you though, through this journey, through all of the PCA stuff, through your, like, your decision to go to divinity school was scripture. Is that fair to say? And, and how did, like, what role did that play when you felt this kind of denominational homelessness? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll see how well I can express this because it's, I've tried in the past and I find myself stumbling over my words here, but. And there's something I want to say about the role that the Bible played in my life at, from an adolescent onward. And I, I, would, I would say that when I was in middle school, going to youth group, big youth group kid, studying the Bible, you know, my youth pastor said, like, do your daily devotionals. And I took that really seriously. And I, the studying the Bible as a teenager, I think gave me an opportunity to have, to like develop my own understanding of God and of Jesus and of what this faith thing was about that was not being mediated by my church. 
even though they were trying so hard, because again, I came from this church where we, it was like super proud of this very particular reformed theology. And like, we have the theology that nobody else understands. And I remember... <laughs> That's exactly the way the churches brag, by the way. <laughs> Just, <laughs> we have this thing that no one understands. <laughs> That's good. I'm oh, sorry, go <laughs> And I remember feeling the tension, even as an adolescent, being like, and you're telling me that this book is about, in my case, it was like Tulip. It's about like predestination and just this whole system. And I'm not seeing that here. I'm not seeing this version of Calvinism all over the Old Testament. Like I'm seeing other things. And so this kind of direct you know, relationship, I guess, with the Bible was like the first way that I learned to challenge the authority that was being put on me and being told to think a very specific way, which is why when I came out later and had to, I was one of those people who had to go through like a very intense studying process because I needed to know if I was allowed to be gay or not. Like that question just dominated my life for a couple of years and involved boiled down to the question for me of like, what is this book? What is this Bible? And how am I supposed to understand it? And how is it supposed to relate to my choices about whether or not I can like date somebody that I love? But I, I, I want to like say that there was something still there in, in my earlier relationship with my Bible or with the Bible <laughs> and with my faith that carried through which is why sometimes I hesitate on using the language of deconstruction, even though there was a ton of deconstruction, but it didn't feel to me like I was losing a foundation. It was, it was like this whole structure that had been built completely crumbled. And this whole elaborate theology that I'd been told was like the only way completely crumbled. And this idea that the Bible is just going to, answer every modern ethical question that you come across if you just get it like exactly right that totally crumbled but something vibrant about kind of this this god of scripture who's in this emotionally just like emotional push and pull with humanity of like wanting us and us kind of pushing and pulling against god and and the jesus story as this like reaching out to us in our humanity. Like that was alive for me, even through my deconstruction process, whatever. Um, I don't know if that made sense. I'm, I've, I've been trying to figure out how to say that for a long time. And I don't know if I accomplished it here, but. Um, no, I, I really resonate with that. I think, I think you said a lot of, a lot of stuff that made a ton of sense. Yeah. I, I love this for, you know, I love the start of like youth group kid read your Bible, and then the, the actual, the seed of that message taking root um, to, uh, to become, you know, a part of like, I don't know where, where do you want to use liberation, awakening, whatever it is. I love that because we, we've had that in a, in a couple of churches that I've worked in most recently. My current church, we have some kids who are dropping out of college for at least a year to, uh, to um, 
protest at Pipeline, Pipeline 3 that's going through Minnesota. And, and it's like, and there's, there's not, the parents are cool with it, but it's one of those things of like, this is what the faith has taught them, right? Like, this is it. And so I love in that, what you described, which was really beautiful, the ability of like this thing that they told you was important actually is important. And it's what led you to, to, to who you are now. And, and to me, that's, that's really powerful. And that's the reason, that's one of the reasons why I can't quit the church. Uh, you know, it's because it's like, I want that kind of stuff to be able to keep happening. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I definitely resonate with that, taking the Bible so seriously and, uh, and being able to have your own personal relationship with it outside of, uh, the people who want to tell you what is in it, which I think is less emphasized maybe in Methodist churches. But like, I, I read the Bible twice in two years in college and it was because I, I was first part of, and then I led a Bible study where that was like, what we did is we like read the Bible in a year. And that, I mean, it like, completely fucked up my faith in like every way. <laughs> like I'd read the Bible before, but I, reading it that quickly, like back to back and also having to attend to it so carefully because like I had to talk about it every week with my friends was like a really big deal. And also I took biblical Hebrew and like learning about um, how texts are translated. Anyway, this is a, this is a spinoff pod, CJ, where you, you, you lead, you lead a, a year long, read the whole Bible as a spinoff pod. There you go. Oh my, oh my gosh. No, I've already <laughs> done it once. I've done my time. <laughs> you know, though, I, I do think that um, this is something I was talking about with a pastor friend because this, oh man, Sorry, I got to think about how to like get into this without unnecessarily like dunking on an innocent bystander. <laughs> but, <laughs> I want to do a drive-by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like a person who. Okay, so that so there was a a take recently published in the like by the United Methodist News because I guess they've been just like publishing opinion articles written by people from my annual conference for whatever reason. And there was a recent one about how the United Methodist Church needed a magisterium to like solve the crisis of authority. I don't know what a magisterium is. It's the like, it's basically a group of priests in the Catholic Church that are like the definitive source of dogmatic teaching and theology in the Catholic Church. So like every theologian in the Catholic Church's work is sort of submitted to the magisterium for approval. And basically the history of it is that like for instance, Benedict the Sixteenth, and listeners who are more knowledgeable about this, if I screw this up, feel free to like not tweet at me because you can't. But <laughs> to tweet at Brian, <laughs> tweet at me, it's fine. <laughs> but basically, Benedict the Sixteenth, before he became Pope in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties, spent his time as the head of the magisterium, which I think is called something like the prefect of the doctrine, something about like the prefect of something about the faith. He basically spent, you know, 20 or 30 years accusing liberation theologians of heresy because of the shit that they wrote and like ostracizing them within the church. So that's part of the history of the magisterium. So this guy was like, well, you know, the way out of this whole human sexuality crisis in the UMC is for us to get a magisterium because it's working really well for the Catholics. <laughs> and I was just talking to another UMC pastor about like, there's such a tendency, I think, in in the white mainline and evangelical churches to kind of have this certainty. And then I think when a lot of around like belief and and this sort of 
coherence around belief that I think when a lot of people deconstruct or go through the process that Luke was just describing, they find the sort of tradition of the church, like the larger tradition as maybe a source of comfort for, or like a source Mm -hmm. of like, oh, now apostolic succession is going to like put me a part of a heritage that kind of shores up some of these concerns that my leaving the mainline or the evangelical church has created for me or whatever. And I think that Willie Jennings in, in his book, After Whiteness, names a real danger in that search for certainty that basically it leads to a type of authoritarianism, you know, like the, and so this guy who, uh, who's like, yeah, we need, we need a, um, a magisterium basically wants like theology cops <laughs> roaming out there, like calling the base, you know, calling the laity and like, and so I, I to me, it just, I think that whenever you, whenever we get to that point, there's something about, you know, like the challenge that Jennings presents in that text is like, there's something specific about white culture that like, when pe- when we start to deconstruct some of that, the thing we want to replace it with, instead of this sort of embrace of a more diverse understanding of the church is kind of this authoritarian drive to like, to sort of violently coalesce something that we call a tradition, even though historically it's way more complicated than that. And I guess all I'm saying is that that's how you become Rod Dreher. That's like the far (laughs) end of of that road. But I think that, you know, so many times we hear stories like Luke's and it's this, this sort of quest for certainty. How can I know what I know? And there's like this, I think, really vulnerable desire at the heart of it. And so often I think what stops people from going that route is just scripture itself. So I, that's a long way of saying I, it, over and over again, I hear this theme of like, and then I just started reading the Bible in a new way or more seriously than I ever had. And the complexity of it, even in, even though it makes things way more complicated, somehow there was like a comfort in that that kept me from taking this like authoritarian turn. And if you By want which it, I mean gender. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, you don't need a magisterium, the Methodist church. They just need to get on a, a Twitter account. Like that's all, isn't that what Twitter is? Just that's how you check people's theology. It's just get a Twitter account and start retweeting. Uh, that, that, yeah, that'll just, take care just of it get for in you. There, start get making it. threads. Yeah, get oh, man. <laughs> Luke, so my sense of it is that you had this kind yeah. of like long discernment period of um, figuring out whether it was okay to be gay. Um, we are both trans and you have, you told us off air that we are very, we have like a lot of similar moments in our lives. Um, but I was wondering what, I guess like what, I was wondering what your relationship to scripture was like as you were also um, reimagining your relationship with gender, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So like I said, I, I kind of, embarked on this I need to figure out what the Bible is where it came from who wrote it etc because I need to figure out um, the gay question and that the so that um, question as we were just talking about meant looking into this extremely complex document with this really like complex history and I feel like the if I had to summarize the one thing about the Bible that shifted for me that kind of opened up so much space for like being queer 
and also approaching modern ethical ethical questions like sexuality not from a proof text standpoint but from a more comprehensive ethical standpoint was realizing that the bible is not univocal that there are so many different strands that are in communication with each other and that reading it to to do theology from it or just to increase our understanding of God via our understanding of these communities um, that wrote these texts is to like pull out what are all the different strands here? What's like the diversity of opinions within this text on this issue? And kind of how are they dialoguing with each other? And in some cases, like which one are we going to follow and commit to and see as like the true vision of Christ for the church? when they are in an irreconcilable conflict, as I think they are when it comes to gender. The way, the way I see it, and I, I don't know if, if, if this is shared by everybody, but the way I see it is like there is a strong patriarchal trend in the Bible. I mean, that's a strand or strand. There's a strong patriarchal strand in the Bible that just assumes that men have kind of a supreme place over women. There's also a liberatory strand that is moving women towards equality with men in a lot of different places, both in the Old and the New Testaments. Um, and I think seeing those strands pushing and pulling against each other within the Bible itself and realizing that, okay, now, you know, thousands of years later, we're reading this text and we're trying to figure out what we think about gender and sexuality in our context, and we're referring back to this book. What do we do with all that? What do we do with that complexity? And to say that the spirit is always moving the church towards a more liberatory practice than it previously had. When it comes to patriarchy, we need to just like commit to the liberatory strand in scripture and let that inform how we read back the patriarchal strand. And I don't think that means we have to just ditch the Bible. Like I don't, like the beautiful thing about it is that the liberatory strand is within the text itself. Like it's pushing us towards that itself. You don't have to say the Bible is irredeemable. You just have to say, yeah, the patriarchy is strong. And also there's this other thing going on and we can follow that, that other strand. And that's basically how I think about both the question of like, gayness and transness and just navigating these questions of gender and sexuality is that you could, you could be patriarchal and you could use the Bible to reinforce your patriarchy. You could totally do that. Or you can choose not to do that because you see this other movement and you also see this like overarching vision in scripture away from hierarchical systems of power and towards, you know, liberated communities where the spirit is empowering male and female slaves, um, like on Pentecost, that kind of thing. And that's a choice that we have to make. It's not like the Bible is forcing us to be homophobic or transphobic. The, the Bible is a complex document. You're making the choices that you're making based on kind of how what you choose to go to run with and what you choose to ignore. Yeah. I mean, I think that one way I've heard this described, because it's such a great point, is that if the Bible was like, gave us this picture of some sort of perfect community, it wouldn't be very helpful to us or to to anyone at any point. You know, So I think that 
part of the problem in Christianity is that we think that everything the Bible talks about, the authors are like endorsing instead of demonstrating or showing us like what bad shit looks like or bad forms of community. And I, but I, I think another way to, to kind of highlight what you said, because it's so right, is that humans are present in the Bible doing all sorts of shit. And the question is, will you look at like God as the main character sort of adapting and interacting with, with the choices that humans make? Or are you going to make like the shitty humans like the main character from whom you can learn nothing, basically, except most of the time what not to do? Like, I, you know, the, the Genesis story is not a story about a bunch of moral exemplars. It's a story about a fucked up family over several generations. Like, and then God being present with them despite all of that shit. So yeah, I think it's just, it's a great point. Yeah, I really like that as a, as a hermeneutic for, I mean, I think even beyond interpreting the Bible, like I think there's a, it kind of, I've always been a little confused by the, uh, the people who are like, every word is literal, but I think it also speaks to like kind of a greater impulse I see in at least our culture. That's like, everybody just wants uh, every piece of, every piece of culture, every artifact to be like one thing. Like everybody, everybody wants a book to mean one thing and it's either good or bad. And I, I actually, I find uh, your, your approach to the Bible, like so liberating to me as I'm thinking through it, because if, if God said scripture so that we can wrestle with it and it can have multiple meanings, um, like that is like such a, that's, that's a much more freeing experience of faith and just of the world, I think, than, than we have like this one book of instructions and we just got to follow it and then everything will be fine and we'll get into heaven. <laughs> Which I would, to be, to be clear, I would also love that because I love to follow rules. I'm a very good rule follower. <laughs> good luck trying to follow the, the Bible as a rule book. Like, good luck figuring out what exactly those rules are because <laughs> it just doesn't work. It just doesn't read that way. <laughs> Luke, you have a thread on your scripture account about Jonathan and David, and I would love to talk about it if this is if it's okay with the other uh, hosts to do it at this time. Okay, so yeah. can you just give like a breakdown of of the thread before I ask you some questions about it for folks who haven't seen it? Yeah, sure. This was just fresh from Bible study last night. Um, I don't know. I'll do a quick summary of the David and Jonathan story just so people know. Um, but, you know, Jonathan is the son of the first king of Israel. So he's in line for the throne. David is this random shepherd boy who's been told by a prophet he's going to be king someday. But no one knows that. He's just a random guy. And 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 just says, like, Jonathan saw David and loved him as his own self and his soul was knit to the soul of David. And then it says he makes a covenant with David and like takes off all his clothes, which I always thought was so erotically charged. <laughs> just, just two bros, five feet apart, not because they're not gay. <laughs> he like takes off his robe and his armor and hands it all over to David in this really dramatic gesture of vulnerability and just kind of like total, uh, I don't know, abandonment to David because of his love for him at great personal risk. He's, he's essentially abdicating his right to the throne and choosing to side with David over his own father. 
who is the increasingly tyrannical king who's going to try to kill David. And it's such a gay love story. And I like the, you know, historical critical scholarship aside, like, whatever. You read it and it's like, okay, Jonathan chooses his love, David, despite his father's expectations for him. And giving up all this future that he could have had just because of how much he loves David and makes a covenant with him in secret, like out in the field where nobody can see. And they do kiss. They do kiss in chapter 20. The Hebrew says that. So, <laughs> yeah. so take that. <laughs> all right. The hot goss. I mean, so I, and so, yeah, the one of the important points there is that they their relationship has been read that way for a long time. But one of the things I really appreciated about your thread is that you know I want to fully embrace the the relationship there. Except the only thing that complicates it for me is that it's not very reciprocal, right? Like David basically never says a thing about Jonathan until he's dead, and. It's just like the only thing that troubles me about it is that maybe David's a piece of shit. <laughs> and like, so the thing that I really appreciate about your thread, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, what do you make of the fact that David, how are we supposed to read his role in that relationship? Because we talked about all these things that Jonathan does for him, but what does he do back? And what about his silence? Yeah, David is such a mysterious character in so many ways in the narratives of 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's one of the most interesting things to me about those two books is how little insight you get into David's thoughts and feelings. In contrast to all the people around him, like you're constantly getting to hear King Saul's internal thoughts. And it says over and over again, like Jonathan loved him and Nicole, you know, the daughter of Saul loved him. And all Israel and Judah loved him, but like David is never said to love anybody. You don't know how he feels about all these people who are so devoted to him. And I think there's probably a lot there about how this text is painting the picture of their first real idealized king. I mean, he's he's idealized so much in later texts and is such a figure in the Hebrew Bible and, you know, son of David comes to me a Messiah. So he, he's like this larger than life character in some ways, but in the actual stories about him, there's this real ambiguity about his character. And I just, I think the fact that the Bible does that and is like willing to talk about even its heroes in this kind of ambiguous and multifaceted and sort of confusing or just open-ended way, as opposed to doing what we typically do in our culture, which is we just turn all of our heroes into saints that can do no wrong. Um, and if you accuse them of wrongdoing, you're, you're like doing something, you know, horrible against a holy figure. Like that's what we tend to do. I think we do that on the left as well, um, you know, uh, and certainly in just kind of mainstream culture. Um, so I love the fact that the Hebrew Bible does not do that with its heroes. It like they are very flawed and very human and so real. Um, all that to say, yeah, Jonathan is a much more sympathetic character to me than David. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan is a beautiful soul, and 
David is mostly focused on his own survival, it seems like. Okay, I hate to do this to you, Isaac. <laughs> Was Jonathan and David the first queer babe? <laughs> Can we trace a line from Jonathan and David in the Hebrew Bible to Destiel Supernatural? <laughs> Wow, wow. I think CJ's always taking it back to fanfic. I, it's a fanfic trope. Someone's one dude's obsessed with the, his best friend, but the other best friend is less enthused. But in fan fiction, they kiss. Well, they kiss in the in the this story too. Remember? See, well, there you, know you go. <laughs> I rest my case. Wow, the Bible is actually fanfic, y'all. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> and there's just as much sex. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's just much bad sex. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think it, it's just, it's even more tragic that we turn David into that, but especially in the evangelical world, he is supposed to be like the exemplar, right, of fatherhood, of leadership, of all this stuff, except he's terrible at most of those things. Like, you know, it, it's wild that after he like assumes. You know, you know, assumes the uh, the throne and and is kind of like basking in his big moment. Um, the rest of Second Samuel is about what a terrible father he is. I mean, he's awful, and and the author is basically like saying it. You know, like man, this guy sucks as a dad. <laughs> and so, but yeah, we just have we have this uh, need to sort of turn him into into some sort of hero, but then. Immediately, when you know they needed a more complicated figure, they being the evangelicals to like justify Trump, suddenly David had like layers. <laughs> suddenly, he was an onion. Because <laughs> they didn't want to talk about the Bathsheba story until until the 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 tapes came out. <laughs> mm. Luke, do you want to go? I, I mean, the the last thing to like sort of highlight from the thread that I thought thought was just really perfect was the connection between Jonathan and, and Christ. Do you want to elaborate on that, any for for folks? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I think the this move that Jonathan makes to give up his claim to the throne, pure out of pure love. There's no ulterior motive. He's not trying to get anything out of David. He's he just loves David and out of that love abdicates his own rights and privileges to preserve David's life and sort of see him through to this, this divinely given path. I, 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 think the, I think the fact that it's just pure love and there's no ulterior motive really stands out as such a, a sort of Christ-like illusion. And also the, yeah, the, the fidelity to this covenant at great personal risk being now he puts himself in danger because he's done this action of love, it, which is interesting because of course, David is often pointed to as the Christ figure, but I see it in Jonathan way more, especially in those interactions. And you know what else it, it reminds me of it. To me, it's also a callback to Ruth and Naomi's relationship, like Ruth's um, vow to Naomi and everything that she does to continue the line that leads to David. And, you know, it, it's just one of the, another layer on the beautiful theme of covenant in the Old Testament, God using uh, actions of people that you wouldn't expect to continue 
the covenant and and to secure it. And to me, it's it's a beautiful way when you read it through that queer lens of talking about, you know, of weaving queerness into that into that narrative of how God keeps the covenant moving. Yeah. But so I, I thought it was uh the right the right, just a perfect example of how to kind of address the very strange place that David has in in that narrative without having to give away the sort of idea that there is a relationship there. Um, for un- unrelated to pod reasons, I've had a very stressful week. And so I haven't actually had a ton of time to do a fight corner. If anyone, like I could open the floor, it could be, it could be a community fight corner. If anyone has, has someone. Do you, do you need to put someone in the fight corner? <laughs> you want to know the first thing that comes to mind is my wife's former landlord who has still not paid our security deposit despite us taking him to small claims court and winning. Oh my goodness. Still not sending the fucking check. It's really upsetting. I think that's, I don't know if that's not like a typical fight corner, I don't think, but that's somebody that I'm really mad at right now. Listen, the fight corner is for your personal beefs. Right. (laughs) But I mean, to be fair, in the time of COVID, we should all have more empathy for landlords. I mean, <laughs> Boo. How, how else are they going to fund their RVs uh, that they're going to take across the country this summer, uh, if not on the backs of people who haven't been able to work for the past year? I mean, let's have a little bit of empathy for the for the landlords and the property owners. Yeah, I'll save that for NPR. Yeah, that, that's what's going to get cut and aggregated. That's That'll probably what gets me canceled. So there you go. <laughs> aggregated. I think we could also... We could open the fight corner, at least for me personally, for all landlords. If you're a landlord, fight me in the Chili's parking lot. For legal purposes, that was a joke. This might... <laughs> yes, that's good. Uh, that's, that might be the, the one where we... Well, I guess if we, if we brought some tenants with us, we would have, we'd have uh, more numbers. But uh, so that's the one where we might be outnumbered, finally. We're not... Yeah, we're not that, well, it's like an outsider-style brawl where yeah. it's like, I think if I tell someone that their landlord is going to fight me, they'll definitely come with me. <laughs> Did you all see? Somebody sent us an old-school Nintendo picture of the fight corner at Chili's on uh, on Instagram. They DM'd it to us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out on my Twitter. Uh, but it's like something about the join me in the fight corner in the Chili's parking lot or something like that. I don't know. I'll... I think and it might have been fan art and you didn't fucking share it. I yeah, think it, it just happened. It just happened right here. I think it was Ramona who came on the uh, on the pod uh, before who sent it. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to look. I was dealing with, remember, I was dealing with the fallouts of, of uh, very gay secret prom uh, in, in my uh, daughter's personal life. So I was trying to figure out what was happening. I just, a brief glance. But uh, I'm here for fighting the, the landlords. I mean, I, I struggled with the idea of buying a house in our kind of like bougie St. Paul neighborhood <laughs> that we live in. But the the one thing that kept pushing me towards it is never having to deal with a landlord again. Like I have never had a good landlord ever, like ever, ha- never had one. And so it, it's, it's like, maybe that is uh, anecdotal, but the fact that I rented for like, you know, well into my late thirties uh, and never encountered a good one. I don't know. I'm just going to put it out there that maybe the type of people who go into that are the type of people who end up not sending checks or intentionally trying not to uh, to find reasons not to give you the money that you gave to them. So, and possibly yeah. because they can't afford to ever give it back because they're, you know, trying to buy more property anyway. What were you going to say, yeah, CJ? Well, I mean, I was going to say, like, even if on an individual level, a landlord is a, a nice person, I think, like, the landlord relationship, I mean, it forces you into a very strange 
relationship with another person that's like adversarial and they have power over you. And it also just like, it affects your financial prospects forever. Like if you rent forever, then, you know, your finances are going to be markedly different than if you own a home. So it's not that I hate landlords personally, but I hate them institutionally. And perhaps I hate your landlord personally. That's right. <laughs> that was a whole journey. I like it. I This is a throwback to a Methodist pastor in North Carolina who had like 16 or 15 or something like that rental properties uh, and was like in the process of evicting somebody uh, at one God. point. And I was like, so how do you like square that, <laughs> you know, with your job and the Bible, uh, et cetera? And he was just like, he's like, well, he basically squared it with uh, that his pension wasn't going to cover, you know, retirement. So he needed to keep this, this, uh, this grift going. So I was like, oh, all right, cool. Anyway. Capitalism comes for us all and our moral frameworks. Yeah. Well, Luke, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Feel free to follow me on Twitter. I'm not that exciting, but I love connecting with new people. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I disagree. When 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 Luke followed me on Twitter, Luke was one of the original, like me switching my my Twitter over to like just talking about religion and stuff. And when Luke followed me, I was like, yes, it's working. I was like, an influencer <laughs> followed me. All right, I'm all right, I'm ready. So I, I disagree. You, uh, I, I enjoyed your account well before you uh, followed me back. So <laughs> thanks, Brian. <laughs> You're um, welcome. We're we're going to form a loose confederation of low church anarchists yes. who may or may not be a denomination. Hey, I'm down. We're all going to form that eventually. <laughs> yes, please. We might, I would say we might not have no, any, no choice. It might be like a survival, but anyway, that's a, I don't want to end on the dark note, but there you go. I just wanted to correct my uh, inability to think earlier. It's prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith. That's the head of the magisterium. <laughs> Isaac's been living with that for like the last 30 minutes. <laughs> no, I just, I just, before we ended, not that anyone can at me, but still, just for some folks in the discord that I know are going to give me shit for that. <laughs> well, now that Isaac's uh, fears have been assuaged. Thanks again, Luke. Yes. Thanks, Luke. <laughs>